This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 199 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Mateen Tamizi, founder and CEO of Balanced. Balanced is a payment platform designed especially for marketplaces. Hi, Mateen. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on, Mateen. Um, why don't you start by giving us a quick overview of what Balanced is and how uh, you got started on it? Sure. So the reason, I'm, uh, the reason I wanted to be on is because I noticed that you guys talked about us before. Uh, and then you're switching over, uh, which which I'm happy about, obviously. Um, but I noticed that you had a few questions that were unresolved, and you were just and you were talking through it. And I figured I just jump on board and answer the questions directly. Right. So uh, the goal behind Balanced uh, is and has always been to enable new forms of commerce. And what that really means to us is working with online marketplaces. So any kind of platform uh, or any kind of exchange or marketplace where they take in money uh, for, the purpose of, um, for, the, for the purpose of commerce to someone else. And there's really three kinds of companies that we work with. Uh, there's goods and services marketplaces. So a good example of this is uh, someone like uh, Zarly or... Um, or another goods or service marketplace would be Airbnb or Odesk or, or so forth. Uh, the, the second type that we work with is uh, crowdfunding and donation platforms. So two good examples of this are uh, if you look at CrowdTilt uh, that we work with and also GitTip, which is uh, on, on the top of Hacker News again for the second day in a row. And the... Uh, and a great example of crowdfunding, of course, is Kickstarter. And then the third category of companies that we work with are ones that do billing and invoicing. So one of our customers, uh, BusyBee, actually built a invoicing platform for small businesses, uh, specifically for uh, for gyms, and starting off focusing on yoga studios. So this is something where, if you think about the invoicing platform situation, you think about the experience. Now let's go into what she would have had to do. Uh, she had a couple choices. One, she could have used she could have used PayPal, right? Uh, but then the experience would be that BusyBee would be sending an invoice on behalf of the yoga studio. So now you already have a second party uh, going out and trying to to receive the invoice. And when someone goes to pay it, they would then have to go off onto PayPal and pay it. In that case, this is a pretty bad uh, interaction. Her second option. Uh, would have been to really become a payments company because when you are facilitating payments between two different parties, you're actually what's called an aggregator at that point uh, or a payments processor. And that becomes challenging. Um, it's, it's not permitted under Visa's policies. It's, there's actually all sorts of challenges behind it. And the reason why it would make sense that Visa and the banks and the government wouldn't really want would really want aggregators to be scrutinized is that you know they need to know the person receiving money is not a terrorist. So there's no money laundering. So I've 
I've said a bunch of different things, but let me recap on what I really get there is that a marketplace, uh, whether they're goods or services marketplace, a crowdfunding or donation platform or a billing or invoicing solution has a very unique challenge where uh, there's this concept of there's someone on their platform receiving money from someone else. And I realized that these companies are really the ones enabling new forms of commerce, companies like Anyfu. And I wanted to find a way to facilitate that and to enable that. No one else is doing that. And we're really unique in that regard. Now, um, you said that, that she, her second option was to become a payment aggregator. So based on what we've done, we're essentially accept, we already have a working um, uh, process right now. So we're accepting payments. We're putting them into our Wells Fargo account, and then we're using Webmaster checks to send them out. So does that mean that we've essentially become a payments ag- aggregator by your standards? So there's, there's, there's two ways to think about it. Um, there's two categories, so we should, we should be careful. And um, stop me if I get too deep into payments. I'm kind of a payments geek, so uh, if I <laughs> no start geeking out too much, you can pull me back. Uh, so uh, if you look at someone like Humble Bundle, uh, Humble Bundle is a platform for you to buy games from people, and they have lots of different game developers. When you buy from Humble Bundle, it's a very you are buying from Humble Bundle, and they are purely sourcing games from different game developers. However, if you go to uh, if you go to someone like Busybee, uh, it's very clear that you are making the transaction with the yoga studio. Airbnb is just the middleman in that case, person facilitating it there. Um, so in that case, they are a payments aggregator. So, so, so we are, you, I guess, in that yes, sense. Yes, okay. you are. And um, when you start getting more exposure than Visa uh, and the the banks um, frown upon it, actually ex- explicitly prohibited by Visa's policies, uh, payment aggregation, to, to perform the equivalent of payment aggregation, uh, you have to be you have to have essentially the same structure as Square, uh, which is what we do. So we work with JP Morgan Chase, and we uh, work as a payment service provider under Visa's policies or payment facilitator under MasterCard's policies. And what we do, and what you were alluding to in the last talk, is you were talking about how do we get the money to the uh, to the recipients the next business day. Um, are, are we nuts? Uh, how do we actually do that? Why is it that other people don't do that? Uh, and the way that we do that is we actually still settle with, settle with you. We settle with any food every seven days, right? So that doesn't actually change. But the difference is that when we're doing the processing uh, for an expert, then we actually underwrite the expert as a sponsored merchant. So imagine the expert actually going to Square's website and signing up and getting a dongle. They're becoming a merchant in under Square who's doing it on behalf of Chase. We do the exact same thing. The thing that we do that is that's unique and what makes us different from any other company is that we give you an API so that the same information that Square would collect to make somebody a merchant, you can do that through our API, which is really freaking hard to do. Uh, because um, what we did before when we had our previous API was branded as, branded as PoundPay was that 
that sign-up experience had to be through us. And it makes our life a lot easier because then we can do things like manual review and have, have a lot of, uh, to, and do that process um, and ask additional questions if we need to. But to do it in the API response cycle and hit all of these external data providers, see if someone's a terrorist, see if they've been terminated previously by Visa, uh, make sure we can match their identity, uh, evaluate risk in that regard. We do that in the API response cycle. So like five to 10 seconds we have uh, to do that. Um, That was really hard uh, for us to build, but that's what enables us to get to the point where we can underwrite the expert as a merchant uh, just through the API. And since you've underwritten them as a merchant, what actually happens when you, when somebody gives you their credit card information and when you process a transaction, it's not actually any food processing the transaction. Uh, what's actually happening is your expert is a merchant and we are processing the transaction on behalf of the expert who is the merchant. So the funds flow through us, uh, but on behalf of the expert and the funds that go to you are purely your commission, your fees that you define uh, with us. And that's what, that's the part that completely avoids you becoming an aggregator. And that's what, uh, uh, that's the reason why we have this direct process. Does that and also the, have, does that also have implications um, for us regarding tax? Yes, it actually has huge implications uh, regarding tax. So if you're an aggregator, uh, what ends up having to happen? So if you go on Airbnb, for example, and you look at their FAQs, um, so aggregation policies have changed, right? So they, they've changed, especially in the last year and a half. And if you were doing it, you know, three years ago, four years ago, then you're kind of grandfathered in, um, and then you have to, and then you work through the changes over time. Um, but the tax ramifications are actually really interesting. So if you look at Airbnb's FAQ, they ask somebody for 1099, uh, they have to file a 1099 miscellaneous for a merchant if they exceed uh, $600 in a year. And that's exactly what you have to do now uh, as an aggregator. Um, Going beyond just the policies behind aggregation, when you are doing aggregation, uh, you are treating every expert as an independent service provider of any foo, which means that you have to provide you have to file a 1099 miscellaneous and collect a uh, W-4 from them uh, just, as in, just as if they were any contractor. The difference in our case is that we are simply processing the transaction. We are processing the transaction the same way as if PayPal was processing the transaction or Square was processing the transaction. So they are not an independent service provider for us. They are not a contractor for us in any way. Um, so we don't have to do with any of that. And they're also not, in that case, a contractor for you in any way because the funds don't even flow through any foo. Uh, our requirement, our filing requirement, is something that's fairly new uh, that was created as a result of eBay and PayPal, actually, uh, something called a 1099K. Uh, it only last year, uh, 2011, was the first year that it had to be filed for anybody. Uh, the difference is that 1099K requirement is purely designed for banks and processors. And the filing requirement, instead of $600, is very different. It's $20,000 and 
200 transactions. So, you know, at, at that point, if someone's exceeded $20,000 in 200 transactions, they really don't have a problem uh, when, when you're going to them and saying, we're filing uh, tax documents on, on your behalf. At that point, you're pretty much creating a large part of their, large part of their income. Yeah. Okay. Well, in our case, when you have an expert who does, let's say, he, let's say that they have a few dozen transactions a year and they have of, of those few dozen transactions, a few of them were with uh, three different, or they had enough with say a handful of different clients that they would need to be 1099. Um, we would actually have to file 1099s for them. So they exceeded $600 with each of the clients. So in your case, how, how does that change? You said the $20,000 number. I mean, is all of a sudden, is it different in this case where we wouldn't have to file 1099s for those? If I understand correctly, I think um, if we were using balance, then we no longer have that obligation for the 1099s uh, because balance then takes that obligation off us and they, did it, they deal with it through the 1099K. Yeah, the, the funds don't flow through you at all. I mean, there's, I mean, it's, you can talk about you can talk about tax requirements, but the reality is the funds don't even flow through you. So it's it's what we first looked at in PayPal with the that they did split payments or something like that. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. Yeah. I, I understand that. So right, the, the the actual money doesn't flow through us. But one of the things that we were trying to offer our clients is if they is if they hired you know a dozen different um, experts throughout a year, or two dozen different experts, that they wouldn't have to do the ten ninety nine each one of them that they would just be through us since the money flowed through us. I mean, through how would this work um, with you guys? I mean, do you guys handle that 1099 process with, with that particular client? No, uh, we don't. So that, so in that case, the, uh, the expert is doing work directly uh, for, uh, for the client. So it's, it's up to them to figure out the, the tax requirements for that. Interesting. So, so that was one of the one of our benefits, Jason, if I remember correctly. Right. Well, we're just trying to streamline the whole process that we would handle the ten ninety nine W nine stuff. So, if I mean, I, I guess this is a little outside of your area of concern, Martin. Um, but let me just ask you this: so, if we're collecting W nine information from our U.S. clients, our clients that are doing work within the U.S., right. and um, we know that. We can tell we, we know by our transaction history how many clients within the tax year they've exceeded six hundred dollars in billing for. So we say, okay, you got three clients that are going to want a ten ninety nine are going to want a ten ninety nine you. Um, so do we? I mean, I guess we could file that anyway. We could we could we could sort of provide that service or something, right? Like that's yeah, a- absolutely. So first of all, I, I said W four earlier. Thanks you for correcting me. It's actually W nine. Uh, so it, it, are, are the clients companies or are they individuals? Uh, they probably be both. Yeah, it could be individuals. I mean, you know, I would tend to be more often than not, it would tend to be companies, whether they're small companies, sometimes a one person consultancy, sometimes it's a, you know, startup, sometimes it's a bigger company. It could be any size. So if it's, if it is an individual, then there's no filing requirements. I mean, it's the equivalent of you buying services from, from PG&E, you don't have to file tax documents for PG&E buying services from them individually, right? Um, and then if you're buying if, if you're buying services from somebody as a company, that's where you get into uh, that's when you get into a different situation. But I'm not a tax lawyer, so I can't say exactly when there is filing requirements. 
uh, in that regard and when there isn't. Um, but from, from my experience, what I've known is that if it's an individual client, uh, if it's, if it's a person, then there's no, there shouldn't be any filing requirements. Uh, and if it's a, if it's a business, then, um, there could possibly be, but again, I'm not a tax lawyer, so I can't get into that detail. I only know how it affects, um, I know directly how it affects us and I know directly how it affects the marketplaces that we work with. But, you know, the, the, the reason why it's complicated for me is because if you look at something like a donation platform, uh, the reason why what we do is significant is that if the funds did flow through the donation platform, then it's no longer a charitable donation for the giver because the money is actually going from the, from the donation platform to the 5013C so the funds have to go directly. Um, but again, it's we don't get involved in that process because uh, we facilitate so many different types of transactions that it would be pretty difficult for us to to do that. But it's, it is an interesting point that Jason brings up because service service platform like Anyfu, um, the way that we have it set up right now, just to, just to reiterate, I know we've already said this, but I think it's worth reiterating, is that our clients are just buying something from Anyfu. So from, for their accounting purposes, it's it's a situation between them and Anifu, and then we we then deal with everything else. So that's pretty simple. Whereas if they hire seven different uh, cli- uh, seven different experts through us, and we're using a system like yours, and there's no money going through Anifu, all of a sudden they've got to deal with seven different uh, contracts, seven different payment pathways. How is there any way that? Uh, Balanced could uh, make that easier, or what? I mean, what do you suggest about that situation? Uh, there's, there's nothing that we do in that regard. So I'm, so I'm not actually sure. You've kind of got, um, you've, you've caught me on something that I'm not that familiar with. So I've, I'm not going to try to BS you. I actually don't know um, how that happens. No one's really uh, pressed me on that before. So sure, no um, yeah, I, I, I'm actually not sure. Uh, okay. I'm not sure what the what the tax requirements would be uh, for someone in that regard. Um, well, but- I'd like. Okay. Well, I want let's ask you because I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, Justin. For sure. I mean, it's obviously it's important for us, but I don't want our listeners to, uh, you know, their eyes to glaze over when we get to do <laughs> uh, <laughs> the detail. So um, I, I, maybe maybe we can step back and talk about some of the, uh, you know, some of, some more about your business in general, like. You know how I, I know that you started out with a slightly different business model that evolved over time, and uh, you know said pound pay be, ultimately became um, balanced. And I'd like to hear how, where you started and, and and how you got to where you are now. Yes, yeah, so nothing in terms of the general premise has ever changed. And like I said, the entire goal was to is to enable for is to enable new forms of commerce, and I'm. I'm a payments not so the best way for me to do that is to to work. I don't want to do the distribution to um, to individuals directly. I rather work with companies that are that are doing that and focus on the payments aspect of it. Uh, the The difference between uh, Pound Pay and Balance is really is, it's the same company. The only difference, the only reason for the name change is because Pound Pay's uh, Pound Pay is an awful name. Uh, I'm not sure why I really ever chose it, but uh, <laughs> well, it's like it's like you're paying your pound of flesh or something. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's actually somebody uh, somebody walked by our door one evening and we had our windows open and the guy was was a bit inebriated and he said, "Pound Pay, you don't pay, we pound you." And then that was <laughs> I kind of did a facepalm and I said, "God, we have to change the name." But I, I kind of just 
I just deferred. Um, I wanted to do it at a, at a time that made sense and we're releasing a new API. So I figured that is the best possible time for us to do the new rebranding because we are making, uh, because we are improving. So uh, really the, the difference between let's say before the rebranding and afterwards and the previous API and the new API uh, is just that, you know, over a year investments in, I guess, yeah, over a year investment in building out something that uh, we could really provide a fully integrated experience. Like I said, it's, it's just, it's very, very painful. You know, I, everybody knocks on PayPal, right? And through the process, I, I started off with the same way. And I said, you know, PayPal is this awful company and, you know, their, their API is terrible and their documentation is 350 pages. And, you know, we've gone through the process and I realized, wow, okay. You know, we're providing a ton of functionality and capability to someone and providing an API that's, that's very simple is actually really difficult. It's really difficult. And then documenting on that in that regard is also really difficult. Like our current documentation is just is horrendous. And we're working on making it better. Um, we wanted to get something out there that, that was good. Our client libraries are great, but, but even then it, it took us I mean, it took us from mid-January to mid-May alone just to write the API on top of our on top of our system, and we we rewrote it multiple times because as we went through the process and we had people, uh, we had our marketplaces try to preview it. We realized, oh, well, that's wrong. That's too complicated. And we did it again, and we we're like, oh, all right, well, that's really annoying. So we had to go through this process over and over again because it's just. You talk about allowing somebody to create a merchant in a programmatic way. Right? Like no one does that. There was no precedent in terms of us learning how somebody did that. So we just have to figure it out. Uh, you talk about things like uh, doing doing next day ACH, and even then we're trying to improve the process because what happens if the bank account is wrong and now you have a rejection and it comes back? Uh, even now we're trying to figure out the best way to handle uh, debiting from somebody's account via ACH debit and figuring out the right interaction for that. And even things like we per transaction, per transaction, we enable you to set uh, what's called a soft descriptor, uh, which is how it appears on somebody's card statement. So um, that, again, that's t- to do that in a way where, you know, there's, there's restrictions on what you can actually put there is 22 characters restriction and, specific characters that you can can and can't include. So the way to bubble that up in the API is, is really painful. Um, we also pose this internal requirement on us that anything that we build, like our dashboard, uh, has to use the exact API that we expose externally. So there's nothing that we do uh, that, that can't be done through our API. I've even split off the engineer who works on the dashboard, <laughs> works on everything else, from even being able to access the code from the API or the fraud system or anything else. So he doesn't even know what it looks like. And that was really important to us. So if you look at our code example, you can actually create API credentials directly through the API. Right? So when you apply to become a marketplace, that actually, so even when you apply to become a marketplace, we actually even do that directly through our API. Uh, so it's, um, and it was beyond just making it just what people consider REST. We really wanted to make it uh, strive as much as possible to follow uh, HitOS. Um, but 
you can't get 100% there, right? Like if we have, it's version, so slash v1 is not a resource. <laughs> so it's not entirely um, following HateOS, but uh, we work really hard. We work really hard to get there. And, you know, this is a long answer to your question, which is what was the change? The real change was we were in Y Combinator in winter 2011, wanted to get something out there. We were using an iframe to collect payment information and the merchant had to sign up through our site. And we knew that was bad interaction, but it was very difficult to get to the point uh, to spend from March to the end of December building out the right infrastructure. And then from mid-January to mid-May, building out the right API on top of that. That wasn't just a complete mess and confusing to use. So since you bring it up, uh, you, know, you, you said you went through the, uh, the Y Combinator um, process. I mean, why don't you tell us a little bit about, little bit about that? I mean, you know, how, did, how did the application process go and uh, how did the interview with PG and the gang go? I mean, you know, we hear about that online sometimes, but it would be, it'd be fun to get a first-person perspective on it. Sure. So here's the general way that I like to think about YC is that, you know, if you're, if you're digging for gold... And your, uh, you know, your, you know, a few meters away, or you're a few miles away, and you don't hit gold, you don't hit gold. Like you, you really don't know the difference. Uh, you miss it, you miss it. Doesn't matter how close you are. What I see really helps you to do is just refine that. But it kind of just helps you like recalibrate and make sure you're on target when you do that. That's to me is the best way. That's the best analogy to think about what YC really does in terms of value. Um, so does that make sense? Does that analogy make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, Great yeah, analogy. Yeah. I haven't heard that one before. I like it. Yeah, so the, the value of YC, um, so I, actually, I, knew, I knew Harge, uh, which is one of the partners ahead of time. I had reached out to him just to get feedback. Um, I live in Palo Alto, so it was easy for me to do that. But I was just trying to get feedback from him, and he responds to me as well. I don't need just apply for YC, um, and then you, I can give you all the feedback you want. I said, "All right, fine, I'll do it." So, um, already had a product that was working. Uh, artists already processing transactions. Uh, I actually applied to YC as a uh, as a sole founder, and uh, when I showed up, uh, I had a co-founder at that point, and. Jessica Livingston looked at me and she, she was confused and she looked back at my application and she said, I thought this was a single founder application. And I said, uh, no, no, uh, since I applied, I found a co-founder. And she's like, great, you've already made progress. Um, so it, it really does help to have co-founders, not only in the application process, but just building a successful company. Uh, so the 10-minute the interview in YMC is, is very, very intense and the, the interview itself uh, is part of the interview. So just uh, how you sort of how you hold yourself, uh, how you react, how you respond, not just the information is really part of the interview because you have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to handle things under pressure. Ten minutes, very short period of time. You know, you pitch any other investors, you're sitting down, you're having an hour conversation 10 minutes is unbelievably short and you got to really just drill down and they're going to hammer you with some very hard questions and try to catch you off guard. You can't BS because if you BS and they're going to, they're going to catch you on it and you just, 
you you look bad. So you just got to be honest. And if you don't know something, just admit to it. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because you don't really get a second chance because what ends up happening is uh, they do the 10 minute interview, you walk out and uh, they decide right away. They don't tell you until the end of the day, but they decide right after you walk out of the room. Wow. Uh, That's intense. So, so yeah, the actual YC process, the, the most useful parts of it are uh, obviously office hours are incredibly useful. Um, PG is great, but you know, PG, YC is a company just like any other company and PG has had to scale the company and, you know, no, I don't actually have the time. I don't code anymore. Uh, I don't, so I, I can't make implementation decisions, but I actually have people who can, I mean, there's, there's people on my team who can code better than I can. You know, I'm not sure I would even hire myself as an engineer at this point. I, I'm nowhere as good as the, as the people on my, uh, on the team. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have as much time to, to sit down with customers as Drew does. Uh, so it's, uh, who's also on the team. So PG has had to scale out the organization in the same way. You know, he's built software to handle things like office hours. Uh, he's built other software uh, that, that we use internally. You know, if you log into Hacker News as a YC founder, uh, the top bar actually has a bunch of different options that's not shown to... Uh, to everybody else. And it's specific for us to be able to th request things like office hours. Uh, so that's, that's part of it is just being able to interact with the partners. So it's no longer just about PG. Uh, the fact that he's brought on all these partners is great. And I'm bringing it up because this is a criticism that I hear that I think is baseless that PG has less time. PG responds to my emails within 24 hours. If I really ever need anything, uh, he's always responded to my emails within 24 hours. But if I want to sit down with someone, uh, sit down with Harge, sit down with Jessica, sit down with Sam or anybody else. And they have, they focus on special areas as well. So it's very useful. Uh, the other criticism I generally hear, which I think is kind of nonsense, is the amount of equity that you give. Um, and I, I think it's worth it. I mean, if, I mean, what's, what's like, you know, as typical amount is anywhere from six to 12%. What's, what's 10% uh, of, of nothing, right? You know, if you don't succeed, then it doesn't really matter. Um, so you really have to think about them not as an investor, but bringing on another co-founder. And even after YC, um, you don't really attend the dinners, which is a great part. Um, but email PG, anything you need. Email, you know, email the partners as a whole, uh, and they're very helpful. Uh, the dinners are great. Dinners are great. You show up every every single dinner, and you're looking around, and there's all these smart people, most of them smarter than me. Uh, and every single week you, you talk to them about the progress they've made in just one week. You're like, oh, holy shit. Like, <laughs> what the hell are we doing? Like, we need to be moving so much faster. And then every week you go back and somebody's like, somebody's like tripled in terms of their, uh, in terms of the number of customers uh, and they've launched and they've made all this progress and you know they've they've got some partnerships and you're dealing with a very a very deep uh problem that's that's kind yeah. of like wading through treacle so probably shouldn't judge yourself from from that perspective uh, especially when working on something so hard hey i've i've just done, like just to take the in slightly different direction i noticed that you guys have a pretty um developed angel list profile i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about angel list and what your experiences of that have been 
So Naval's great. I actually did AngelList before uh, before YC for for a couple of investors, and some of our investors came through AngelList. Uh, it's what they're what they're trying to do is disrupt the model that you have to be a Silicon Valley insider and you have to know investors uh, to get to get in front of an investor. Um, I, I think it's great in the sense that you can do that. Uh, I think the most powerful part about it is that not the part in terms of getting introductions, but the fact that it just leverages your time. Uh, you can do it much faster. Um, but in terms of getting introductions, I actually think that's a reasonable bar for investors, whether you can get in front of them or not. Um, the best way to get in front of investors is just find who's made the investor money, uh, which entrepreneurs made the money, reach out to them. They're usually pretty open to talking with people. And then if they like you, they'll make an intro. And then if you know an entrepreneur who's made an investor money introduces you, then they're going to take the time to meet with you. Um, so the reason why we have an AngelList profile now is because AngelList has become the de facto standard that I found of people uh, kind of like an about us page of list of investors. You know, I have a couple of investors listed on our community page and on our website, but I think the really best page, really best way when someone asks us, are you guys, are you guys legit? You're a payments company. I'm relying a lot on you. Uh, they go to our AngelList profile and they see who's there. And we've gotten customers who've contacted us through AngelList. We've gotten investors who contacted us through AngelList. Uh, I think it's a fantastic platform. And if you look at what happened with Rally and what Naval was able to accomplish with the Jobs Act, uh, AngelList is going to be AngelList is going to be massively powerful. Well, I, I noticed that you have some pretty big name investors, and in you have Ashton Kusher, you have Matt Cutts, who's the uh, he's the head of the web spam team at Google. You have Paul Buhite, the creator of Gmail. And FriendFeed, um, Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, um, just to name a few. I mean, how, how did you how did you get these uh, these big name investors? Were these people that came through um, Y Combinator connections, or were they people who came through um, uh, other individual connections, or through AngelList? Uh, YC will get you in front of them. Uh, it's, it's your job to to sell them, but uh, it's a large number of them uh, were we're being able to get in front of them through YC. You know, if you're a YC founder and you email another YC founder, the likelihood they're going to take the time to meet with you is much higher. So, uh, you know, the guys at Airbnb have been super helpful and, you know, Brian Chesky was, um, has, has been very helpful uh, in that regard as well. He's been like a mentor uh, and he's one of the best CEOs I've ever met. I, I think he's really one of the best CEOs out there and I think he's building a great company. So it's, uh, they've been great. Um, you know, SV Angel is kind of interesting. Uh, SV Angel uh, passed before I was in YC, and then YC really helped us to refine uh, our direction and refine the product. And then uh, it's just within a couple months, I talked to David Lee, and he said, "Hell yeah, let's do it." Mm. Um, <laughs> so, for people who don't know SV Angel, that's uh, Ron Conway's uh, investment group, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they, they, they and almost, one last thing I'll say is that it's uh, Yuri Milner and SV Angel that provide the hundred and uh, was it forty thousand dollar convertible debt to all YC companies, which has no cap and no discount, right? Uh, yes, that's right. So, uh, 
That's true. So it's uh, during it, it. I don't believe that SV Angel is still involved in the start fund. I actually think it's so when we receive the start fund money, 100K uh, of the start funding is from Yuri Milner, and then 50 of that is from uh, SV Angel. So to clarify, SV Angel actually invested 150K directly on top of any money from the start fund. Uh, I see. So they okay. invested in us directly. I hate to be to represent the tabloid press, but I'm really interested to know how involved uh, is Ashton Kutcher? Is he completely silent or do you kind of brainstorm ideas with him? How does that work? Ashton Kutcher is not the kind of guy that you need to sit down in person and have a long conversation about what the product's going to look like. Um, but uh, pretty much everybody's going to respond to Ashton Kutcher's email. Um, you know, if you receive an email from Ashton Kutcher, pretty much whoever you are, you're going to respond. Uh, especially if you're in the consumer web space, if we're trying to reach out to a customer. Uh, so if uh, he's tremendously helpful about that. Um, the, the one thing that I have to admit, I have to admit, um, and I don't know if he's going to hear this, if anybody else knows Ashton is going to hear this, but I was actually really skeptical uh, when he first reached out to us um, for the same reason that I think a lot of other people are. But Ashton Kutcher did more due diligence on us than any other investor. And you may be trying to overcompensate because of, uh, because of the perception, but I had just companies out of the blue that were existing customers and potential customers that I was talking to just out of nowhere say, oh, you know who called me and you know, had an hour conversation and asked me about you guys? No, <laughs> it's like Ashton Kutcher. No other investor did that to that extent. Uh, in an angel round, I was just, I was blown away. And during the, you know, during the conversation that I had with him, during the pitch that I had with him, he drilled so deep, not only on the product and on the vision, but just like, you know, how, how are you going to work with banks? How is their view on you? What are the policies? Explain compliance, everything. He was so knowledgeable and so sharp. Uh, that I was I was really blown away. So uh, I I bought into a lot of the stereotypes, and I was also skeptical as well. But I knew it was worth the time to talk to him, and I was I was really blown away. Um, but in terms of being helpful, it's it's really only when you mainly need it. So leading on from that, do you uh, get kind of lean on and get help from your investors on a regular basis, and and brainstorm with them and things like that? Every investor is different and you bring on every investor for a very different reason. So if you look at the list of investors, uh, one of the guys that's on there is Sean Glass. Sean Glass was a co-founder of a company you've probably never heard of, uh, Hire One. They're a public company listed on NYSE. Uh, they're, you know, they have 3 million depository accounts and they, um, they work with colleges to open bank accounts for... Uh, for people and uh, for students. So these guys really understand the financial services space. So I'm not going to go to Sean uh, and ask him for uh, as much for product questions, but you know, if I'm trying to get in front of somebody in the financial services space and Sean probably knows him uh, with, with SB angel, you know, if you ever get into a situation where you really need someone to save your ass, uh, they'll do it and they'll do it within like, they'll do it within like 10, 15 minutes. Like, um, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, it's, it's good to have that. So what's um, your, uh, what's your growth strategy like? I mean, how are you finding customers? It seems like it's a very specific type of customer. 
And if a customer is a good one then and, and they are successful, I'd imagine they could provide a lot of revenue. But it'd be interesting to I'd like to understand how big this market is or might be from your perspective. So I think the market is growing. And I think that's the important part of of how we view it is that we're making an investment in the long term. You you have to think about it this way is what is a marketplace and what is it really enabling? And this is what I talk about us trying to enable new forms of commerce. Uh, if you think about what you guys are doing, what AnyFoo is doing, and why I get excited about AnyFoo or any of our marketplaces is that you're not making you're not you're not making markets more efficient, right? I don't really like to think about it that way. Uh, the experts on any food, the income that you generate for them, that's income that they wouldn't have had otherwise. You're right. creating a new market. Yeah, right. And we're, we're unlocking existing existing value in a sense. Yes, but that's that's income the person could not have had, and that's money. So this is the important part. That's money your client, the clients, may have never. Spent Right? Right. So that is critical. So like Airbnb, for example, is not necessarily stealing people from hotels. They're actually causing people to travel more. I think what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, I think you're answering Jason by saying our market is infinite because it's we're unlocking the potential of new non-existent markets. Exactly. So, if, you know, I talked I talked to Brian about this, uh, Brian Chesky about this, and I asked him, you know, when you talk to investors in late 2008, early 2009, and they asked you about your, you know, your TAM, your total addressable market, what was your response? And he kind of shrugged and he's like, I don't know, what's the size of the total hospitality industry? Um, and he's like, even on top of that, what's actually turned out is that we didn't actually steal a lot of that business. We ended up creating a new market. So he's He's like, I don't know. It's it's massive, um, <laughs> but it's it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to know uh, at that size. I, I don't know what the size of what the market opportunity for for your business is because I don't think you're actually stealing it from anybody else. You're creating a new market for someone else. Um, another great company that I that I really like is um, so. Let me give, go through a couple examples of marketplaces that I really like now, and I think are going to uh, disrupt how things are done. Um, so if you look at uh, if you look at Kitchen, for example, I think this is a very easy example to understand. How do you spell that? Kitchen. It's K-I-T, like Tom. Yeah. C, like cat, H-I-T, like Tom. Kitchen. Uh, it's just kitchen.com. So the Kitchen is a marketplace for chefs. So, you know, you want somebody to come and uh, cook dinner for your employees for lunch, or, you know, you're having... Uh, people over for Christmas or Thanksgiving or for any event, and you're just having a bunch of friends over, um, whether it's very casual and small or, or really big, it uh, doesn't have to be a huge banquet. And you can get a chef who, phenomenal, fantastic chefs come to your place and cook. Like This is not catering. They actually will come to your place and cook in your kitchen with uh, with groceries and and everything that they bring uh, with them, so it's all fresh. And then afterwards, they clean up. Uh, <laughs> they clean up and they leave. is is pretty remarkable. 
So think about the market that they're addressing, right? And I don't, so this is something that people would normally not do. Like I have no idea what I would have done, what somebody would do before a kitchen. It's just, it's not like there's an alternative. It doesn't compare to catering. Um, it doesn't really, nothing before that really existed. But what ends up happening is for the chef, now you have a chef who is, who's working at a restaurant and is now able to supplement their income. Or now you have, you know, all the changes with the economy and you have increasing unemployment rate and you have these fantastic chefs where the restaurant just went out of business. And now they're able to actually create, you know, their primary source of income is through kitchen and they're able to go, they're able to go through kitchen. That, that's exciting. Well, you can even that's see that. That's powerful is that. You can, e- you can even see how these uh, chefs by doing that would build up a, a, a client base that would want that would be like regular customers, right? And the kind of people that would hire these chefs are probably people a little, who are a little more well-to-do. And there's just the kind of people like, hey, I love your food. You should open a restaurant. Maybe I'll invest in it, that kind of thing, right? You can just see how all kind of interesting things could develop out of these short-term relationships, which is something I think that we were seeing uh, or have been seeing on Anyfu, which is like these these short transactions with that they bring together a, 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 a client and an expert. It's a expert marketing platform as well, yeah. right? It's a, it's a marketing yeah. platform. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, so first of all, I, I don't want there to be a misperception in terms of how Kitchit works. I actually think the power, a large, powerful part of Kitchit is that uh, people who couldn't previously afford that, um, they're democratizing it in many ways. Like it's um, someone who's not well-to-do, uh, somebody who just... Is, is having a bunch of family over for Thanksgiving. And the last thing they want to do is, is uh, entertain their family and, and cook a turkey and, uh, and do everything. Part of that is actually makes a ton of sense uh, for them to have a chef come from kitchen. Uh, and it's, it's, there's fantastic chefs, but it's definitely affordable as well. Uh, the other part that you, that you touched on is this actually goes back to the size of the market, which is the, um, which is what you talked about in terms of it being a marketing platform. The way I like to think about it is that uh, advertising is really what used to address this market. And advertising is broken. You know, it's lead gen advertising is this concept that, uh, you know, and you have all of your experts, they, they all put up these ads, whether it's on Google or somewhere else to try to get customers to go to them. And then the advertisers will either charge through uh, just showing it up uh, just showing it on their site or through click-through traffic, lead gen. Uh, the problem is that it's pretty hard. It's it's pretty annoying because somebody could click through and you may not actually get that business and you have to make all these difficult decisions and you may not actually get business out of it. You know, my, my mother has an at-home childcare, right? And she used to spend all this time um, putting ads uh, in the newspaper and spending money on that. Now she does it through Craigslist, doesn't spend money, but but even then it's, it gets a lot of noise. Previously, there could never really be a company that would, there could never be a company that would actually tell my mom and say, hey, why don't you list on us? Um, not, you're not going to pay anything uh, to get listed. Uh, we'll build up reputation for you so people who actually know who you are. And then if, if we bring you a customer, uh, you know, we're going to build our business because we're just going to take part of that transaction. And hey, you know, this is a customer you weren't going to have anyways. 
Um, so it's not like, it's not like lead gen where, where it's just like, Hey, we're going to throw a customer at you and you're going to have to pay us no matter what, just, you know, where our incentives are aligned, you know, you only, we only get paid if you get paid. Uh, this is, that's pretty powerful. It's lead gen advertising and advertising in general is just broken. And this is, this is the process well, that fixes it. Speaking of that, I mean, what is your strategy for, um, Bringing on new customers. I mean, how do you find these uh, these these very particular type of uh, uh, customers? Uh, you know, surprisingly, it's actually been very organic. Uh, so you talked about Ashton Kutcher, and Ashton Kutcher is actually referred. Uh, Ashton Kutcher referred Zarly to us. Ashton Kutcher referred uh, Fancy to us, thefancy.com, uh, to very fantastic customers, and a lot of them have come through. Uh, other investors, not necessarily our own. So somebody will go pitch an investor and say, you know, here's the company that I'm building or here's the company I want to build. And they say, well, how do you do payments? They say, ah, oh, well, that's really hard because we're a marketplace. We can't get a merchant account. Or um, they're like, oh, well, why don't you go talk to these guys? And they're like, oh, great. Um, or uh, now, um, I don't know if, so now what ends up happening is they just, somebody will, will see an existing marketplace and you know, they'll, they'll reach out to them and say, well, how do you do this? And, you know, that if they're a happy customer and ideally they are, uh, we work hard for our customers to be happy. Then they say, Oh, you should really talk to balance. They do a fantastic job. Oh, yeah. One thing I want to ask you about is your growth into other countries. Because um, when I spoke to Jero uh, a few weeks ago about the ability to do the ACH to, even other first world countries like the uh, UK and Canada, France, Australia, whatever, which is where for us, there are, they're going to be experts who need to get paid. I mean, um, I mean, we can always have checks mailed to them, but you know, ideally we'd love to have this one day ACH because that's, you know, I mean, nothing. It's, it's a, it's a great positive feedback loop when you do some work for someone and then you got this money in your bank account the next day. So what, what's the, I mean, I'm sure there are other, there are complications involved with that, but what's, what are what are some of those complications, and is is that even going to be possible at any point? So it's it's definitely possible, and it's one of our biggest focuses. Uh, so we do process international cards. Uh, so in terms of the the client being international, that's certainly not a problem. Uh, in terms of having international experts, like I said, to to make this possible, we underwrite every single expert as uh, as a merchant. So that means that we have to have banking relationships and meet compliance requirements for. Uh, for every country that we operate in, and we're able to underwrite them uh, as as merchants. So that being said, that's something that we're uh, investing a lot of time in. Um, you know, even early on, we were early on we we were probably the only five person company uh, that I know of that had in house general counsel. <laughs> so we take right. we understand the value that we create. Um, we take that very seriously. We try to f- focus on that, but uh, it's it's just it's just working through it. Um, but uh, one thing for you guys that, that I'd love to actually figure out right now and then we're working through is just um, the best way to, to handle the uh, multi-currency uh, because the funds are actually held in the interim uh, in, this, uh, in, this, in this escrow balance that we have. Uh, so it's uh, depending on the currency and how you hold that is kind of interesting whether you hold it which currency you decide to hold it in if you're dealing with multiple currencies. Right. Well, I can imagine that 
you have currency risk, overnight currency risk. If you hold it for you know a day or a week or whatever, I mean, there's gonna be the value is going to change respective to either the client or expert, depending on which currency you hold it in. If they're in two different countries or you have two yes. different currencies. Yeah, so I want to give that choice to our customers, to the marketplaces, mm-hmm. uh, but it's we just have to sit down and we have to hammer through um, and spec out the how to put that into the product without making it really confusing. And this is this is really difficult for us because every time you want to add something on on the back end, it's it's a complete mess, right? Like we have to upload CSV files to different places, you know, for doing ACH and uh, all of this stuff. And you know, not a lot of it is not in real time, but we have to re- return a real time API response. Uh, so we just have to figure out how to put it into the product. For, from from our perspective, we we're only going to accept payments in dollars anyway. So I don't, I don't and we I are? think I would have thought so. Yeah. Why do you say that? Because it's going to make life a lot easier. Well, I mean, if right now we're using, for instance, Stripe. So whatever Stripe accepts, which is currently U.S. and well, but but you know, we have. I mean, the, our prof, everything is done in dollars, and and our experts' profiles are in dollars, and they set an hourly rate in dollars. So we just, you know, if if someone works for ten hours, they charge that times by their hourly dollar rate. Yeah, but they'll ultimately need to have that. Uh, I mean, I guess I I don't know if it has to be that ultimately because if you had somebody in France hiring somebody from you know Bulgaria or something. I don't know if it would necessarily have to be going through dollars, but uh... let's put it this way: it's it doesn't bring enough. Well, just from my perspective, just just brainstorming this right now, it doesn't seem to bring enough um, benefit to offer that in different currencies. As much well, work as it's going to take to, to to create that. Yeah, well, I mean, in the short term, right? And the yeah. short term, it probably won't. And in, in the longer term, you know, what we might be doing in eighteen months or a couple of years from now, when we have a large enough international audience, and who knows what what what. what we might want to do, but I would think that if you were going to do that, you'd want to make it a something that you can set on an individual basis. So, like for instance, if a client said that they want to pay in a uh, in a certain currency, and an expert is going to get ultimately get paid out in another currency, they're in a different country. They can maybe the expert can define, and when they set up their profile, it says, "Well, you know, do I want this money held in the paying currency or in my currency?" So. They, they're specifying what kind of currency risk they're going to take, something like that. Also, your API, I guess, needs to send back the current exchange rate for that particular moment, that snapshot in time, if a payment's made right then. Uh, yeah. Sh- sure, yeah. It's, I, I don't think we've spent enough time thinking about exactly how that's done, and we need to spend a lot of time working with customers. I mean, the, the thing that we did realize... Uh, and we've it has been hammered into us <clears throat> into our culture for a long period, uh, and we're trying to do it more and more. Is that you know just as you guys talk about it, I think you guys are even trying to figure out the right way to do it for you. And my response to that is, it, you're right. Regardless of what you come up with, you're you're still right, and it's it's your decision. It's not mine. Um, and I have it's my job to create a product that no matter what you, regardless of what you guys decide to do. Uh, you guys can have the internal conversation. We should support it. Yeah, well, it seems like you guys have a slick enough platform that you know you're able to build that stuff in the end. Um, yeah. And uh, it seems like you're solving some you know really tricky, nasty problems that uh, nobody else really wants to solve. <laughs> Not many people want to solve. It's interesting that you were talking about. Um, you just mentioned there the upload of the CSV. 
Um, are you referring to like ACH deposits? Like with certain with certain banks, the only way to do it is by uploading via CSV, and it's just totally not a real time thing. Uh, that's that's actually the standard. So the standard for ACH is written by an entity called um, uh, called Nacha, uh, and the the Nacha standard uh, in terms of uh, they have a CSV format that you're supposed to upload, uh, and it's a batch process. Uh, so when you uh, when you issue uh, ACH credit uh, calls to us, uh, we we then take that and we batch that up and we issue it up to. Uh, we push it up to uh, our bank, and then they do the ACH processing. Um, it's it's kind of a mess uh, on the back end. Um, I remember I was talking about this with someone else, and I said, uh, you know, we have the uh, we have this soft descriptor field. Uh, you know how it appears on the card statement. It appears on card as uh, on statement as field, uh, and it's twenty two characters for the card statement. But you know we can't really guarantee exactly how it shows up. Because uh, it's it's a decision of of the cardholder's bank. Um, I, I certainly can't guarantee uh, it being case because uh, I'm pretty sure COBOL uh, until recently was not case sensitive, and uh, <laughs> I guarantee right. you most of the, their money frames were written in COBOL. So uh, I assure you, it's the the payment systems, just payments infrastructure um, in the U.S. and in the world is just a complete. Just a complete mess. And with with balance, can we capture payments via ACH, or is it just send via ACH? Uh, get in there. Um, we'll do it. It's we can we can do it internally. We have the capability to do it in terms of our relationships. Uh, the just trying to figure out what the right API interface is in terms of what happens if it uh, if there's a rejection um, and what happens in those cases. Uh, there's actually also uh, you can actually, uh, most people don't know this, uh, everybody's familiar with chargebacks on the card networks, uh, but there is actually a dispute uh, mechanism on on ACH as well, where the, the bank account holder can actually dispute an ACH debit uh, within 90 days with their bank. Uh, so all of these things, is it's pretty easy for us to just come and tell everybody, hey, just upload a CSV and we'll just expose the same interface that, that we have internally. And that's just, I, I'm, I just, that's not what gets me up in the morning. That's not, right. not a good product. Um, I think core value of our company is just high pain tolerance and the fact that we love payments. And uh, I just trying to figure out how do you create the right product and right interface on top of that. That's, the biggest feature that that we have requested, and um, that's our number one priority in terms of moving on to uh, next. Um, oh, oh, really? The the biggest feature you have requested is to be able to ACH build debits. build via ACH. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's the and, biggest feature that we've have requested. And what about the? Uh, they said be able to make uh, ACH transactions or payouts to other countries. Uh, that's also a big request, but ACH debits is just. It's a massive requirement. It's a massive feature that the people have required. And part of it is that the, the most important part of it is it's actually very relevant to you as well is if an expert receives money and then they decide to refund that amount or part of that amount is now you have to be able to debit the money back from the expert so that you can push it back out to back out to your customer. 
Why is it such a big request? Is is there is it because basically you can send much larger amounts of money via ACH in an easier way? Is that why it's a big request? No, absolutely not. It's exactly what I just outlined, which is that uh, you guys can issue a refund on a credit card, but if the money has already been pushed out to the uh, pushed out to the expert to the merchant, uh, then for you to be able to refund that money back to the client, you have to pull it back from the expert from the merchant. So to really support this concept of a full refund, uh, I mean, you guys have this challenge now, right? If you, you mail a check to an expert or, you know, you issue ACH through, you said you guys were doing it manually or, or something. If you issue ACH, uh, issue, issue a credit to a expert, now the expert wants to, uh, to refund part of that money uh, to, the, to the client. Um, that's like, that's by far the biggest use case for, for being able to do this. Got it. Got it. Well, um, Mateen, I think we're uh, about running out of time here. I think uh, you told us you had a uh, had another uh, call or something run off to. So um, I guess we should probably call it here, right? This yes, is that it for you? I appreciate you guys uh, having on having me on as well. Uh, we've been you know we've been working on we've been working on the company for. Uh, for over two years now, and we've really stayed quiet for a long time, uh, for better or worse. Uh, I've certainly been challenged by invest- my investors <laughs> on whether it made sense for us to be so quiet for so long, but I believe in that decision because it was very difficult for us to get here and build out the product and the infrastructure that we have, and only since the last uh, month or so have we been much more open about our platform, and I appreciate you guys uh, talking openly about us and um, letting more people know that we even exist. Well, yeah, we we appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. Uh, you know, I think balance is a lot of promise. It's it's definitely solving a really tricky problem. And it's a, I as I think I said to uh, your co-founder when I spoke with him a couple weeks ago, I was like, where were you guys six months ago? Right. <laughs> we, I mean, our listeners have been listening to the show. heard us like show after show trying to puzzle through how the hell – we were going to make all this stuff work and it was just a nightmare. So, and I think the old saying holds true, which is where there's muck, there's gold. So you go out and solve a yeah. real nasty problem. There's going to be, there's going to be a profit opportunity there. And I, I think you guys uh, have found a good one. You know, just, for, just, just before you go, one thing I'd love to see on your site is a page that just lists, I know you've got three, three customers listed there, but it'd be awesome to just see all the different marketplace opportunities that, that you uh, support because if you, do, if you do things like Kitchit, I mean, that's just really interesting. Um, and it'd be great to have a place where you can discover new marketplaces like, like that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic idea. Uh, sh- should look into doing that. Um, if anybody does want to contact us, uh, they can uh, just go on um, you know, Hash Balanced on, on Freenode, on IRC, uh, which try to, we're, we're looking on there pretty much as much as possible. And we'll try to respond. Uh, you can, if there's any technical questions, you can ask on Stack Overflow with the tag balance-payments. Uh, you can jump on Quora and ask any best business questions that anybody want. wants. Uh, you can just tweet at us. Uh, it's balance-payment, not plural. Uh, Twitter has, unfortunately, a, a character limit, even for the Twitter handles. <laughs> and uh, Or uh, anybody can just email us at support at balancedpayments.com. Well, well, thanks so much. It's been really, really awesome to talk to you. 
Yeah, so that's it. So good luck with uh, good luck with balanced, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. All right, take care, guys. Well, that's a wrap. We're out.